Hey, hey, you people of Earth, it's time to enter the spoilerverse via our secret portal at the exclusive Arctic Club in beautiful downtown Seattle with our hosts, John and Kenrick and Casey. Welcome to Spoiler Country. Hey, if you're listening to our show for the first time and you're on one of the social medias that we're on, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those kinds of things, you should always check us out on spoilerverse.com. But if you want to keep up with our latest episodes, you should bring out your smartphone, get into your favorite podcaster, find Spoiler Country, and hit subscribe. Then you'll get all our new stuff. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that in two ways. You can call us and leave us a voicemail at 707-656-2080. Again, 707-656-2080. Or you can shoot us an email at spoilercountry at gmail.com. Comic book readers, novel writers, welcome back to Spoiler Country. I'm Kenneth Regan. That is Mr. Horsley. And today on the show, well, it's Howard Mackey and Terry Cavanaugh, isn't it? It is, man. And Howard's been on the show before. He was a lot of fun talking about Ghost Rider and all that fun stuff. And he comes back on yeah. with uh, with Terry Cavanaugh to talk about Spider-Man Clone Saga. And, uh, nice. and he talks with Casey. They have a lot of fun. Uh, they do mention a website, InkySmith.com, which will be in the show notes below. Uh, I'll leave it to them to tell you all about it, but definitely go there and check it out. There you go. <laughs> bam, bam, bam. That is synopsed. Just get to it, man. Just get to it. Well, let's just sit back and listen to Howard Mackey and Terry Cavanaugh in their own words. We'll use our polite words. Well, God forbid you want to, you know, say something like un- untoward or whatever. It's, it's all good. We don't care. Now, um, as long as it's not about me. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, I work for a company that makes medical devices that go inside your body. Wow. So, um, like, God forbid you ever have to have a like something like your kidneys checked or something like that, and you have to have a uh, flexible endoscope. A cystoscopy. Uh, yes, yes. If you have to have something like that, I, uh, I've had thirty-five of them. Oh my lord! So yeah, and this no morning. Ma- <laughs> <laughs> What's that, Terry? For, for I'm having, this can, morning. Yeah, yeah. Your your mic. I'm having trouble hearing you. Oh, all right. I'll see if I can turn me up. You guys keep going while I'm... Oh, yeah. Yes. Anyway, yes. I, I've had many, many uh, cystoscopies. So no, no matter how, how small those things are, still not small enough, man. Okay. Okay. Wait a minute. So you're talking about the scope. Not You're not making any aspersions about uh, me. Right? <laughs> <laughs> no, never, never. Uh, okay. Okay. I just wanted, wanted to make sure. Yeah. No, you're right. And the, the I would say the first 15 of them was with no anesthesia. And Ooh. that really sucked. And then one of my doctors said, well, do you want me to knock you out? And I, I said, are you freaking kidding me? <laughs> you, 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 I want that. <laughs> I wanted that done 15 times ago. <laughs> so, yeah. And Terry will tell you, will attest every time I have one, I will, will call him up and tell him exactly, you know, every single detail of how, how it went. <laughs> It's when he sends pictures that I really, I have to balk. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you know, I, I build those all day and shoot lasers at them and make sure that they're welded 
correctly. And sometimes we have to retrofit outdated models. Mm-hmm. And so, so we, it's, it's crazy. It's, it is fun getting to work with my hands and do stuff like that and work with the lasers and all that other stuff. I do not want to ever have to rely on any of those because it just sounds painful. You know, it's it honestly, I, I will be completely honest. It's not as bad as it sounds. Uh, it, it, yeah. Okay. It's not good though. Well, no, no. And I think I, I, I said to one of my doctors, you know, if you tried to do this to me at a bar, I'd smack you in the head. But, uh, so, so you're, you're all good now though. You're healthy. Oh yeah. No, I, I was diagnosed with bladder cancer 31 years ago. And, okay. and I had a, 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 a small tumor in my bladder. And so then it just was all, and it was fine. There was no radiation, no chemo. They just removed the tumor. And then I had to have this incredibly fun test every you know, year. So nothing came back. No, ever. No, it's been fine. As a matter of fact, two years ago, my doctor said to me, I think we can, you know, cut you some slack now. That's you're, awesome. You're, you're officially uh, done. <laughs> so he also, uses that, he also uses that cancer in every disagreement. He's like, Hey, I had cancer. <laughs> Absolutely. I used it for you when I was an editor at Marvel. <laughs> I've heard it a thousand times. I'll make me rewrite that. I had cancer. Oh, come on. I I was at a convention in Hawaii with, and the writer James Robinson came, was also going to be at at the show. And uh, he came walking through the, the, the lobby of the hotel. And I could see he, I I didn't recognize him. And he looked like he, he was somebody who knew me. So he came right up to me and introduced himself and I said, oh, hey, hey, James, how you doing? Nice, nice to meet you. And he said, we, we actually have met before. And I said, oh, okay. And he said, I can tell you exactly how. And it was, I guess, there was one of our writers' conferences, Tara. And he, w- he was uh, attending, and it happened to have occurred the day after I had had one of my cystoscopies. Oh, and he, he said, and so people were asking, oh, how, how'd it go? And he said, and you went into great detail. <laughs> he said, and he said, it actually was kind of funny detail about <laughs> the whole thing. And he said, I just was so blown away. And I, he said, and at one point, you know, like a month or so later, I was at a bar in London and, you know, having drinks with, and I can't remember exactly who it was, but it was like, it was like, the, the the British wave of illuminary writers at that time. So it was like Garth Ennis and, oh, nice. uh, you know, uh, uh, whoever, the, 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 the other Warren Ellis and who, who am I missing? Anyway, and he said, and yeah. I just started telling them about, about it. I said, oh, that's friggin' cool. You're talking about my bladder with, with, with Garth Ennis? <laughs> so, <funny>. Anyway. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm I'm glad you're in the clear now because yeah, yeah, that stuff is is scary. I, I had to have I had a cancer scare in my early 20s, hmm. and everything was fine. But I had to get a colonoscopy, and I uh-huh. woke up midway through, and apparently that's not supposed to happen. And yeah, I've done that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and they're like, no, no, you can't get up now. You can't get up now. 
So I laid back down and just ripped a massive, I, I just passed some massive gas, laughed and then fell back to sleep. <laughs> so <laughs> this is where we're operating at on this podcast, by the way. I have been told I have a really high tolerance to anesthesia by multiple doctors because I had all these procedures. And I did, I also woke up in the middle of a uh, colonoscopy and, you know, I was looking at the camera and I remember just, just saying to the doctor, Oh, wow, cool. Is that me? And he said, yes, Mr. Mackey and turned to the, the anesthesiologist and said, hit him again. <laughs> you know, and afterwards told me he had to give me the most anesthesia he ever had to give a, a patient. And then, so years later, the, actually the last time, a few years ago, I had my cystoscopy. I, I was getting, the, the intake nurse was talking to me and she said, well, is there anything else we should know? And I said, yes. I said, I have a very high tolerance to anesthesia. So please make sure the anesthesiologist knows this. And she said, okay, not a problem. After I had it done, they all told me, apparently, I woke up and sat up in the middle of the procedure, as the doctor said, because you wanted to help. <laughs> and, and I said, just, just tell me, because knowing where he had had the device in me and that I was under, I said, just tell me I didn't hit anyone. Okay? And he said, no, no, you were fine. <laughs> and so afterwards, I said to the nurse, you remember I told you about the high resistance or tolerance to anesthesia. Did you mention that to the anesthesiologist? And she went, oops. <laughs> I recently learned something about when they knock you out for that or dental surgery, because I'm going through my share of dental surgery right now, that they, this leads to, I'm not sure I should tell you because it's kept me awake night since then, but I'm going to tell you guys anyway. Apparently they don't really knock you out. You feel everything going on, mm -hmm. but they make it make the twilight thing makes you forget it. Yeah. So you that's, feel yeah, that's terrifying. all of that pain. It's just it's it's led to very interesting conversations with my son philosophically about that. I'm like, well, really, so memory is the problem. Cause who cares if you feel all that? I guess you can't you care at the moment, but if you never remember, I don't know. That's that was good news to me in a weird way. Well, that, that explains why women have more than one child. Yeah, it does. Oh, God, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine. So I actually had a, a, a tooth, a molar cut out yesterday. Ooh. I broke it and it like there was just no repairing it. And they gave me a shot. And then the next thing I know, I'm stumbling to, to a chair and it took me a few minutes to process like, oh, that this shit's over with. They've already done it. Yeah. It, yeah. it was weird. It was so weird. Well, the way I found out about it was that I was sitting in the waiting room and there was screaming going on. This, oh, was, no. this was afterwards when I was just filling out some paper. Or I was making another appointment and there was screaming and I said, oh, that sounds painful. I'm glad I don't, I, I don't know why that guy didn't get knocked out. I'm glad I didn't do that. And she said, oh, yes, you did. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what? And then she explained it to me. I don't know why she explained it to me because, it, like I said, it haunted me after that. But she said, oh, you were in agony. You were screaming like a little baby. 
Oh, wow. But the the drugs make you forget that. And I'm like, what? I was stunned. I was just messed up my head. It really did. So I've heard that that adolescents and more specifically teenagers have different reactions like like teenage boys for some reason get really like horny and (laughs) girls will cry their eyes out. And it's happened to my wife. Last time my wife had to get her uh, wisdom teeth out, she she got really weepy. And I remember early on in our relationship, she drove me to get my wisdom teeth out and they gave me a notepad. And immediately I was just writing the most like, like it was very ribald when I was writing. <laughs> Wait, notepad while you were under to um, do automatic writing well no no i was in uh recovery and i was just like yeah don't you want so you know she did not want any of that while a chipmunk with my mouth full of goss (laughs) but let's let me go ahead and introduce you guys because we've we've been talking about no (laughs) i just love talking to y'all right now for the listeners i'm talking to terry on howard mackey and Howard, we, we've had you on before. I really enjoyed talking to you. And now we got your, your buddy, Terry Kavanaugh on, who is a writer and editor in his own right. And so, Terry, let's get into you a little bit. Tell me how you got into comics in the first place. Huh. Well, as long as you don't ask me any actual dates, because after I came back to New York from college, I was working for a construction company for a while eventually selling acoustical ceiling tile, which was really not as rewarding as it sounds. And I quit that. I traveled around Europe a little. And then when I came back, I had no work at all. And a friend of mine from high school, Michael Higgins, was working at Marvel at the time and started just giving me letters pages to do. I think, Howard, would they pay $25 page? to? Yeah, something like that. I think it went up to 50 at one point. Yeah, just as freelance work. So I'd go down to Marvel. I'd pick up all the Fantastic Four letters. I'd take them home. I'd write a letters page and then deliver it back to them and a couple of other titles. And then the assistant, Ralph Macchio's assistant editor, Craig Anderson, got sick and was going to be out for a while for six months or so that they knew of. So they just asked me, probably because I was passing through the office at the moment, like, hey, you want to be Ralph's assistant editor? I'm like, yeah, sure, that's fine. Ralph. See how people got work at, the, at, that, at that time at Marvel. It really was. Uh, I said, yeah, that's great. I mean, I was a comic book fan my entire life. So Ralph was notoriously, Howard, confirmed <laughs> this. He, he, he didn't come in very early to the office often not until three or so in the afternoon. So I really had no one teaching me what I was supposed to be doing. Like I had no idea what an assistant editor did, but Howard and Bob Harris and Michael Higgins were very gracious and they would walk me through all this and we became friends. Really a big part of it was because the editor wasn't actually there until about an hour and a half before I went home every day. We became friends. It was fun working in Ralph's office. And then when Craig Anderson came back, they didn't really know what was going to happen at that point, but they created a position for me, which was basic. Well, not created, but Elliot Brown was the submissions editor who looked at the art that had been sent in and said he needed 
an assistant basically just to make more work for me. So I shared an office with him doing that. And then Ann Nascenti's assistant, Pat Blevins, was leaving the company. And Bob Harris just walked me into Ann's office one day and said, here, Terry's going to be your new assistant. And Ann knew me from having been around the office a few months. And she said, okay, see you Monday. And uh, that's how I became an assistant, an official assistant editor, was on the X-Men books. And then when Ann left staff, I was promoted to editor. That was a very long-winded answer. I apologize. No, it was not. That oh, was, no, that's perfect. I, I actually was going to say that was pretty concise. Okay. I, I've heard you talk before. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and so so did, did you have any, like, were, were you just trying to break into the comics industry or was it all just happenstance? It was, it was happenstance. I mean, I was a huge comic book fan. And if I was, had been any, if I had been smart enough, I would have been trying to break into the comic book industry, but it honestly never occurred to me to do something for a living that I enjoyed as much as, you know, I'm an only child. And so my parents were all very encouraged. My grandparents and everybody was always telling me I could do anything. I could become president if I wanted you know, all that encouraging stuff, the you could become president thing sounded vaguely threatening to me (laughs) because I had no desire to do that whatsoever. It just never crossed my mind that they would pay you to do something you enjoyed. I I don't know why. In retrospect, that makes me very, very stupid. Maybe it was a generational thing. I'm not sure. But, you know, I I came back. I, I had friends, but I had no work. And one of those friends happened to work at Marvel and he knew I was a comic book fan. High school, we would go to the comic book store every Tuesday, which was comic book new comic book day back then, and we would go together afterwards. So he just started giving me some spot work, and it grew into that. It was never uh, a goal or an ambition until I was actually working there. That's awesome. And once you became you, you started working as an editor, you did you have any desire to write right away, or was it something that you you felt was out of reach? I did. I started writing when I was still an assistant editor. Again, I believe it was Michael Higgins who offered me an issue of Kicker's Inc. And again, that was more out of necessity than (laughs) I certainly wouldn't have been the best choice since I'd never written a comic book in my life. But Kicker's Inc. was a new universe title and very, very few people at that stage wanted to have any connection to the new universe because Jim Shooter was very on top of that. That was his baby. So Jim knew what he wanted and it was, he was becoming increasingly difficult to please at that point. So I'm sure I was the 134th person that Michael Higgins offered the title to before getting a yes. And I think I had that much to lose really. And I did it and I enjoyed it. And then I started pursuing the writing. Yeah. After talking to to Howard the other day, it sounded like when Shooter was there, it was kind of a scary time to be working at Marvel, just in regards to job security. Yeah, that's that's a fair thing to say. I mean, I, I learned a ton from Jim Shooter. I really did. He was a really smart guy. I think his people skills started to wane a bit. And maybe it was pressure. Maybe it was launching the new universe. I don't really know what it was, but And I, as an assistant editor, was never a victim of that. He was very careful that he gave credit to the editors for anything done well in their comics, and he took it out on the editors, anything done badly. He would never have done that on an assistant editor because he knew he had little or no power to affect creative. So I was never really 
his increasing anger was never really a direct threat to me. I would get scared for Ann Nascenti sometimes, often, because he just got very loud and in people's faces. There was never anything physical, but it was just, I did sort of think sometimes, oh, am I going to have to leap up and do something and then get killed? Because he was nine and a half feet tall. Oh. <laughs> I did think that. I, I did recently at a party, Howard, at my apartment that you were at, I related that story and Anne's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I never felt threatened. I never felt threatened at all. And I'm like, yeah, okay, that was all in my head. That's fine. (laughs) And it wasn't. I I should not imply there was anything directly threatening. I was just a kid and I was watching my boss get yelled at louder and louder pretty much every day by everyone's boss. Oh, that's very disturbing. Anytime you're in that situation. And and to Terry's point, I mean, Jim was, was a big guy. He was, I don't remember, six seven, six, eight, something oh like that. Gosh. And I thought he, was tall. Uh, he liked to use that size. In, it, at least my impression was he liked to use it to intimidate. So mm. he would come over and he, he would, he would like, you know, pull an LBJ over you. And that's why, you know, I, I don't know if we covered this in last time I spoke to you, but when I was Mark Grunewald's assistant, we had built a platform in our office, put our desks on it so that we were the only office that Jim Shooter not only couldn't loom over and look at whatever we had on our desks, but when he came in to talk to us, he had to look up at us. It, it's not a misstatement to say, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I never felt physically threatened by him. Neither did I. I, I don't want to imply that. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, we, I mean, we're, Terry and I are both city boys <laughs> and, you know, I, I just, it, it, ta- it takes a bit to, to overly threaten either one of us, but I think he definitely used that. Uh, yeah. Plus he was the boss. Wow. So, but to Terry's point, we both learned quite a bit from, from working under him. I, I, I think it was very, I, I feel fortunate to have, uh, worked as do I at that time as do I and I think honestly one would at a normal job if it got sort of that loud or it, it built to that point you would think yeah I don't need this job that badly I don't care but we all loved what we did so much it mm-hmm. was such a dream job that the idea that you were displeasing a person that could take that away from you really added a whole other level, wouldn't you say, Howard? Oh, oh absolutely. Oh, wow. and, and it became more immediate because with, I remember <coughs> at Marvel, when I first came in, uh, like about a year before you, Tara, I think, Marvel was renowned for no one ever getting fired. There was, I think, and, and they would cite one, the one, I think it was an assistant editor, not, not somebody I, I ever knew. They'd always say, oh, yeah, and I'm not going to name names. Such and such was the only person to ever get fired at, at Marvel. And so you thought, okay, well, this isn't a bad place to be. And then as <coughs> the years went by, there were several people who had been fired. Mike Carlin, Denny O'Neill, Michael Higgins, and Elliot Brown. I believe all had gotten fired by shooter. So it felt much more possible than, than it had when, when I first started. So, but anyway, we, we don't, we don't need to talk <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. About, about Jim. 
And, and, he, was, he was really good. That's the other thing. He was really, really good at what he did. Yeah, absolutely. He he fascinates me as because he really was a he got a lot of stuff in motion that that probably needed to happen at Marvel. Definitely. Yes, yes. And also just the fact that he started out when he was what, like fifteen or something? That that fascinates me. But you guys started working together and did did y'all hit it off right away? No, I still don't like him. <laughs> well, I thought we became friends relatively early, but Howard Howard and he was in a new relationship, a relatively new relationship with your girlfriend now, your wife. You'd moved in together. Mm-hmm. So Howard didn't come out with us all the time if we went no. out bar hopping or not to every kind. You came to music when we went out to music, but <laughs> when Deb was out of town. <laughs> yeah, when Deb was out, and then all you did was talk about Deb the whole time. So exactly. <laughs> so like, don't tell Howard; he's a downer. Yeah. Uh, well, no, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I had a girlfriend, so I much rather hang out with her than, and she hated you guys. Yeah, I don't blame Oh, wait, did I say that aloud? <laughs> so, but, yes, no, we, I mean, I think, I think we did become, I mean, Terry, Bob Harris, and I became friends pretty quickly. Yeah. And remain so, you know, they're, they, I count them as the clo- I have three other siblings, and they're all sisters. And Terry and Bob are as close to brothers as I, I've ever had. And you know, when that you know we've we've been friends now for wow, it must be like almost four or five years, right? Yeah, at least. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I would say between the three of us and Bobby Chase, we were the we were every day we would go to lunch together at least. Yeah. You know, there might be other people with us as well, but we were a core lunch group, no? Yeah. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And then, then, you know, I think of even with you, Bob, and I, though, the biggest problem we would have is, you know, all of us were always talking to each other on the phone, even when we weren't in the same office. And there would be times that one of us would, you know, get on the phone and say, well, you know, like I was telling you, you know, X, Y, and Z, and... I would have to say, no, Ter, you—that wasn't me. You probably started this conversation with Bob, and so I don't know the beginning part <laughs> of this this story. And then he'd recount it, and I would do it to Terry, and Bob would do it to me. And Terry—I mean, we we just—that's the kind of relationship we we've had over the years. And then Bob became a fancy editor in chief at DC, and we hate him. <laughs> <laughs> so so let's get to spider clone or, or the clone saga rather terry th- this was something that that you brought up first am, am i correct well, i have one question for you first did you like this storyline or not i did and, and to oh, be honest yes. with you yes. it was <laughs> yes. I, I was a <laughs> i was when it first came out i was around 12 at the time so i was you know a, com- a younger comics reader and I, I ate it up. I thought Ben Riley's costume was pretty rad looking, and I thought you added a or it added a lot of stuff to this to the Spider-Man story. So yeah. yes, it, it was originally my idea, but I, I hashed it out with Howard on the phone incessantly for 
weeks and weeks before going into that writers conference. I know I've read a lot that there was a mandate at the time that we had to compete with Death of Superman, etc. I honestly don't particularly remember that. I think you do, Howard, and I don't. I do. Know. Yeah. I to me it was more a personal mandate in that we had written Spider-Man away from our core audience. I think, you know, he was a kid and he came home and he had, you know, homework problems and dating problems. And then suddenly he was married to the most beautiful model in town. And now he had mortgage problems. And we, we had, he had become sort of your father's Spider-Man because as we all aged and matured and got married and got mortgages, we sort of did that with him. And I think we just sort of forgot. So it was a personal mandate for me to somehow get out of that. And it didn't mean, you know, having Peter Parker get divorced would just create more baggage. The idea was to have less baggage attached to him. And I fondly remembered the original Jerry Conway clone story, which I think was around 75. So I would have been about 16 and what I really liked about that story was that it was two good people in a bad situation. So the dra- it was rife with drama there. It wasn't a, a very obvious rooting capacity for one character or the other. So it would just, it seemed meaty to me and a good story to tell. And then, you know, he had never confirmed that the body that fell down a smokestack didn't fall directly into flames and, and burn. He had never confirmed that that was out there. So the the real idea behind it all was we have him come back. He's been living on the West Coast because he's a good guy. And he decided he was the clone and he didn't want to mess with the real Peter Parker's life. And because so he was a good guy and he went somewhere else and, and lived a quieter life. But he had, would have to come back for a reason. And then the group came up with Aunt May. And then the reveal would be that he was the real one and the current Peter Parker was the clone. And we would have a Spider-Man who was unmarried, who had not finished school. And we would basically have gotten him back to his roots, not by adding more baggage, just by telling the story that had apparently happened off panel for years. And there was some resistance at first, but again, people were all looking for good story to tell. And that's how that came about. And for me, part of the inspiration of it also was Dolly the Sheep on Time Magazine cover. And I remember thinking comic books are supposed to be doing, staying ahead of science and talking about tomorrow's science. And then scientists had just in real life cloned a sheep. So that should, that lent itself very much to a story. And there was one out there already and we could play off of that. That, that's awesome. I, I was actually going to ask if there was any connection to Dolly. Yes, most directly. It was almost around the same time. I, yeah, I, I'm, that's my recollection. And, yeah. you know, my, I also, I remember <coughs> Terry coming to me and I was not familiar with the Jerry Conway story at that time because that would have, that, that period of age 16 was when I had discovered other pursuits other than comic books. And so I was was not as familiar to it. I, I was a hitman for the CIA. And I, I, when he described the story to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, Tara, I remember you, you telling the whole thing in great detail. And then I, I did find the comic 
to read. And I, I, I think that was my, my suggestion was, well, there's no way that body got destroyed because... Well, yeah, the idea was, when I first brought it up to you, the idea was he's out there somewhere, but you were right. You're the one who said, oh, come on, it went down a smokestack at the Con Ed place. What do you, what do you think? There's open flames down there? Right, <laughs> right. So, so, and I, I just thought it was such a clean idea that had root, uh, roots in continuity, which is what Marvel was all about. Right. As opposed to, you know, it, it felt the opposite of Deus Ex Machina for me because it was, it was based on a, a good story that, that was told years before. So, and you could only really have told it in that context, in, in, a, in a long story that had a past like that. Right. Otherwise, if you're just creating a clone out of thin air, then there's no history to it. There's, there's none of that, and it wouldn't have served the purpose it served otherwise. And, and, and a lot of writers really feel bogged down by continuity at Marvel or DC or wherever they're working. In some cases, they're like, they'd rather ignore it. In some cases, they do ignore it. To me, it was, I always looked at it as a source of material I could use and we could revisit in a fresh way or we could use it to add impact to a completely new story we were telling. But the, the fact that certain elements had happened to this character in the past would mean it was different for them than it would be for a, a newer character. That was always positive to me, that continuity. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I was, I was less of a. I, I always felt it was important, given the the breadth, and the length of the 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 Marvel history and the amount of continuity that was there. I felt like continuity should always be acknowledged, but we shouldn't ever be trapped by it. So I, I mean, I, I felt like we we shouldn't ignore it, but I mean, you know, as you know, Terry, there were there were some stories that were were less than, you know great that you wouldn't want to to go and revisit you know um. well well, this was an example of continuity that wasn't weighing us down it was actually opening a door exactly and that that was the thing that you know that that was what terry said to me and what he said i remember saying at the meeting because we we had to present this to to another writers conference where it was (coughs) the the editor's and the group of writers and Terry pitched this idea with 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 my help. But it, the the line that he always used was, you know, what was it? You, we we should. You don't want to close any doors without opening up a window. That that was it. <laughs> you know, and so when we got to the discussion of it, well, Aunt May will die in the course of this story. I remember saying, then we have to introduce Uncle Ray because. Aunt May serves a purpose, you know, Spider-Man is relatively successful, whereas Peter Parker's a nebbish and, and can't really pull things off. So he'd have no reason to come back down to earth and be Peter Parker. If you don't have an Aunt May or an Uncle Ray or whatever you have, did she serve this grounding purpose for him to not just be Spider-Man all the time? And so that was what that line was in connection to. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Closing that door and killing Aunt May. Then we got introduced. We got to open a window and introduce Uncle Ray. Now, now, when y'all presented this to your to the other editors and, and other team members on the Spider Books, they think you were insane <laughs> because it is such main. Like Aunt May is such a mainstay. No, um, it, the, the original pitch was not to kill Aunt May. That's so right, Terry. 
Yeah, that was not from us. That that came that came later. Yep. Well, nice. But to answer your original question, there was resistance from the from the writers at first, and definitely much more so from the editors. Wouldn't you say, Ter? Um, yeah. Yes. As I, as I pitched it that we were bringing the clone back, really before I could get all the way through it, Howard made me pitch this. He just kept bugging me to like pitch this idea because I could sense that there was a lot of people throwing things around and nobody thinks anything's crazy at any of these meetings, to be honest, at a, at a comic book conference idea. Everything can be entertained. That's the advantage of the medium. But oh, that's before awesome. I got much farther than you know this old jerry conway clone story and it we could we reveal that the clone didn't die and he comes back i remember mark dematis very specifically saying no we just did uh, we just brought back peter's parents and then revealed them as lmds it would be a repeat of that so i had to sort of rush to my ending which was no no the end i i had a way that i was planning to build to it but i had to rush to it to get Otherwise, everybody was just going to go off on another topic and dismiss that based on what Dematis said, rightfully. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, no, no. But the twist here is that he turns out to be the real Peter Parker and the one who's married to Mary Jane has been the clone. And now we have this Peter Parker who hasn't finished school, who's unmarried, and we can write Mary Jane and Peter off into the sunset with a happy ending and or have two spider titles come out of this. You know, we could do that as well and keep that the current Peter Parker Spider-Man continuity with Mary Jane alive. The minute I got that out, then Dematis was on board and everybody else was listening much closer. I would say the biggest resistance we had was from the editor. Yes, absolutely. So the the original clone idea was you know we, as we were talking earlier it was with in a comic written by Jerry Conway how receptive was he to this i i, I know he was kind of maybe tangentially involved involved somehow with the story <clears throat> not that i'm aware of oh not, no he wasn't i'm sorry no. not to my knowledge either no. and i wish somebody had talked to him about it, it that might have been a nice thing to do. It was not a necessary thing in the industry by any means, but I, the whole reason the idea even sparked for me was that his original story was very powerful for me when I was younger. Yeah. So that well, should be recognized. He, uh, I actually talked to him two years ago, one year ago, and we, we brought up the clone saga and he thought it was cool that you know, people picked up something that he had written, you know, so many years ago and, and made something new with it. So he, he, it, I don't think it, it bothered him or he was miffed about it. <laughs> I'm very, very glad to hear that. And I would feel the same way. Someone picks up something I did and now makes a whole new story. Dan Slott did it with the Clone Saga. He reintroduced Ben Riley with stuff Howard and I and the others had done. And I thought that was great. Yeah, yeah and I, I just had that experience with Ghost Rider, they, they had a new series that that came out by Ed Brisson, and I, I wasn't aware of it until I ran into Ed after the uh, first issue came out at New York Comic Con a couple of years ago. And I read it, and he was picking up characters that I created, Danny Ketch and others, and I loved it. So, I mean, he, he put them through the, the ringer, but, you know, it's part of the job. Is I mean, it, especially when we... We work the way we do and we know what the, 
I mean, we're very aware of when you work for Marvel or DC, you don't own anything. And it's, it's work for hire. And, you know, just as <coughs> we are going to be mining for <coughs> ideas through stories that other people have written, people after us are going to do the same thing. And it's, it, you know, I, I, I find no, no insult in that. And I, I don't believe, I mean, certainly if Jerry was consulted at the time, it would not have been at our level. Because, I mean, I, I didn't really know Jerry at that point, and it would have been up to the, the editors if they felt that was necessary. And I, I, you know, my take on it, and let me know if you agree, Terry, is an editor would, at that point wouldn't have thought to do it. They absolutely wouldn't. I would, Unless he was currently working at Marvel. And right. I don't, I don't I believe he was. I had worked with Jerry when I was editor of Marvel Comics Presents. He did a couple of things for me. But it, honestly, it wouldn't have occurred to anyone to ask unless he happened to be down the hall. Yeah. That's yeah. Really how it would, the only way it would have played out. But Howard's right. I'd say we got the most resistance from the editor. At, by the end of that day... Obviously, it had to be pitched to the editor-in-chief because this was a big thing. I mean, the intent was, don't let anybody tell you otherwise, that this was going to be, what, a three-month storyline in four titles. And in the end, Ben Riley would be back in the role of of Spider-Man and he'd be singing. And Peter and Mary Jane would have been written off into the sunset happily with a baby. Somewhere in my office, I have the notebook that has the original notes. And it was, it was three months, four titles, because we thought that is 12 issues, which is the equivalent of a year's worth of stories. Right. And we thought that, that was ideal. And I have it all broken down month by month, issue by issue. Well, I mean, in, in the most general of terms of what was going to, to happen in, in those, those issues. And yeah, so, but to, to follow, finish up, I mean, the editor was, we, we felt like we had gotten him hooked, but he made it clear that it was going to have to be approved by the editor-in-chief, it was Tom DeFalco, and that we all, the writers now, were thoroughly enthusiastic about the potential of this story. And what the one thing we asked the editor, who's Danny Fingeroth, who I, I still get along with quite well. We said, we said Danny, do, do us a favor. Don't pitch the story to Tom yourself. Bring him to the meeting tomorrow and let us pitch it. Because our concern was that Danny would not have the same level of enthusiasm for it as we would, as, as the writers. Very specifically, our concern was, I personally, Howard, did not think he was on board. I, I do think he presented as being on board by the end of the day because he, he was excited by everyone's excitement, mm-hmm. but I think he was very afraid of it. And very specifically, our concern was he would go to Tom DeFalco and say, Tom, you don't like this idea of the clone coming back and turning out to be the real Spider-Man, do you? Right. You know, if you present that way, <laughs> you're sort of leading the person you're talking yeah. to down a negative path. Or um, along the lines of, well, the guys came up with this idea and I don't know how I feel about it. And, you know, and we, <laughs> we, we knew it was going to be one of those, those things. So we wanted to have the opportunity. And with, he promised not to tell Tom ahead of time. 
And he's a lying face liar, liar. Because yes. he, <laughs> he, he pitched it to Tom. Tom came to the, net, the meeting the next day adamant that we could not do this story. And his main reason, Tom's main reason, I mean, he re- literally came in armed with, don't even bother, this is not going to happen because, and his main reason was, it's just like doing that season of Dallas where, you know, the next season starts and it turns out the Bobby's in the shower, even though he had died last season and all of last season was Pam's dream. And I remember saying, no, Tom, it's nothing like that. All of these things happened. We're not claiming anything that the fans read didn't happen. We're not retconning anything. We're just claiming they didn't know the whole story yet. And this is the story underneath it coming out that we will spool out to them in the most dramatic fashion. And he relatively quickly got on board after that. Absolutely. And then ultimately wound up taking up one of the titles. Yes, that's right. (laughs) That's one thing that, that fascinates me about the story. And one thing that I think needs to be explored more just the stories in between the stories. I remember speaking of Spider-Man, there was the untold tales of Spider-Man uh, right around the time of, of Spider-Clone Saga by Kurt Busiek. Mm-hmm. And I loved it just, just for the fact that it was little tiny snippets of, of story that nobody knew about. And, you know, you, you can't, it, it's not like comics follow a day-to-day progression like hell, I would, I would hope not. He needs to. Spider Man needs to have a rest every now and then. Yeah. So, <laughs> not like twenty four. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, yeah, I really enjoyed that that aspect of the Clone Saga. And in addition to that, you brought on some some really interesting characters, namely Kane. Whose idea was Kane? That was Howard and I. All the other writers and artists, we all share credit for Ben Riley and the Scarlet Spider. But Howard and I are the creators of Kane. Yeah, I I loved the uh, the Scarlet Spider his his outfit and everything. Or yeah, on the other side of the thing, I thought Kane was immensely badass. That was the intent. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it, it worked. It, it really sparked some yeah. some a lot of cool ideas in in my in my twelve year old brain. So you guys really we're hitting all, on all cylinders with Kane. I, I would say, Howard, correct me if I'm wrong, but we knew that for a story this size, we would have to have a very cerebral villain. And nobody really was confident the Jackal. We could pull mm-hmm. that off with the Jackal being a major villain in all this. So we wanted really like a Doctor Doom level villain. And then we wanted a real physical threat level villain. And Kane was the physical threat level villain. And then Judas Traveler was supposed to be the other, the sort of mastermind type villain. I think that fell flat. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I mean, part of, part of the advantage Terry and I had working on the, the, those, those titles at the time was some of the stuff that we spoke about off mic, which is, Terry and I have been friends, had been friends, close friends prior to that. And we spoke to each other all the time on the phone. So it was not unusual for us to be talking to each other at two or three o'clock in the morning, kicking ideas around because we we were usually working at that time anyway, because we were younger and could actually wake up the next day. But so we 
that's how as that's my recollection of Kane. I, I couldn't even tell you, Tara, at this point whose idea it was initially, because we just that's how we went back and forth on things. We knew we needed that kind of visceral villain for it. And you know, and then we we knew that there was a clone, so why couldn't there be more than a clone, a failed clone? Yep. And you know, and the, you know the 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 brother aspect felt very biblical to us. So you know, we we, we that's that's my recollection is that's where the Cain name came from. And you know, that's a harder sentence to say than you would imagine. Cain <laughs> name came from. Uh, and uh, and really, I think at the beginning, all we thought about his motivation was he was in constant pain all the time. Yes. And he was driven by that constant pain and lashing out, almost mm-hmm. like Hulk level lashing out. There wasn't much thought to what he did. That evolved over time. And in fact, I remember this very clearly. Howard Knight, as he said, discussed details of what we were going to do so the story got parsed out and I knew what I would do in my first chapter in web of Spider-Man. And then Howard knew what he would do in the second chapter. And, and Tom knew what he would do in the third so that I could then work on Mark in the fourth so that I could then be working on the fifth chapter, which would be my next issue of web. So we had that sort of parsed out and Howard and I had very clearly discussed, I was going to have a one page intro of this shadowy figure, just sort of following Peter Paul, or maybe even Ben Riley, I don't really remember, on the rooftops. And it was just going to be about pain. Like the only dialogue was going to be pain, 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 pain. And we discussed all that. And then Howard got a copy, a black, this is how it would work. They Once the comic book was lettered, it would be sent to the other writers so they could see, so that Howard's now writing the next chapter and he could develop what had happened there. And this entire page, this Kane page, was lots of expository dialogue explaining every detail of his life that I had not written that had been rewritten by the editor. And Howard called me up angry. He's like, this is not what we agreed to. And it doesn't fit with, you know, it doesn't fit with what I wrote for the next appearance of Kane. And you and I agreed what you were going to do and you didn't do it. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about, Howard. I haven't seen this. They had not sent me the black and white copy of my completed issue yet. And at that point it was too late and you had to make adjustments to whatever you had written. Yep. Yeah. And and that's how comic books work. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. It's a lot of plate spinning and to, to have initially just been in in just in quotation marks, 12, what, what was it? 12 issues over three months that in and of itself is massive, a massive undertaking and then you guys ended up having the story expanded for for quite a while. How, how did y'all how did y'all feel about that when it happened? Were were you stoked about it? Were you shitting your pants because now you had to write more stuff? What was well, the feeling about that? Howard was on the books much longer than I. I'll just I'll, so I'll let him address this. But I just first want to say I never felt the story got expanded. I felt it got dragged out, <laughs> dragged on. Yeah. It, 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 it was a situation where we were a victim of our own success. Would you agree, Ter? Yeah. Where we, you know, what happened coincidentally at that time was the, the co- collapse of the comic book market, that bubble that had grown 
in, in, in the early 90s <coughs> were collapsing. And sales were dropping across the board on everything, except on the Spider-Man books. Really? And we, we, I think we were going up and then we kind of, even, we just kind of leveled out when everything else was dropping like a stone and the, the, the powers that were the, the, at that time, Marvel had become much more corporate than when we first started. Uh, well, I mean, they were corporate. They, they, they were, they were a public company and they were being managed primarily by marketing people. Geniuses Every one of them, I'm sure they can tell you <laughs> if you asked. And they decided that we couldn't end this story because it was succeeding. And, you know, I remember at one point saying to the editor, I, I'm assuming you explained to them what a story actually is. Uh, you know, it has a beginning, a middle, and <laughs> guess what? Guess what happens? It has an end. And we were told, no. It, it, it had, we had to drag it out. I mean, cause you know, that, 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 the thing that always still, I, I, I bristle at whenever it's referred to as the clone saga, because I know that was not the intent of Terry and I and the other writers. It was a clone story. Did we, when did it start getting called the clone saga? I don't think until it was done. Yeah, that might be only in retrospect. Yeah, oh, yeah. I oh, think. really? In that sense, saga is a nice way to put it. Yeah, because I, I certainly felt like I was going through a, a, a saga of my own with it because then <coughs> then there were a bunch of things. And I think, you know, we were going through bankruptcy. We were you know, restructured and all that. And they, they, they changed the, the, the editorial structure as well to where we had five editor-in-chiefs and we editors in chief i'm sorry and we we also like the the original editor had less control over things and different elements were being brought into it and it was just i i i look back on that period and think why the hell didn't i i i jump because i was i mean i i can there there are there are copies of comics that I am given <laughs> at at conventions to sign to to autograph that I really hesitate putting my name on it again because of how uh, unhappy I am with the the result and a lot of that was because I mean it became completely editorial and marketing driven. We, we, we were just became word monkeys at that point. And it conflicted directly with the most important, you know, baseline tenet of good comic book storytelling, which is tell a complete story, introduce a conflict, resolve that conflict in a way that appears to evolve the character. Not too much, because they got to last for another 80 years, this character, so they can't evolve too much, but that evolves the character in some way and then introduce some element that leads into the next story. And this ju you just couldn't ever get there with this storyline. Right. You couldn't do that. Like, there was never going to be another storyline. And on some level, I think it was offensive to the creators because it suggested that, 
well, you're never going to come up with the storyline as good as this. Right. So it can't end because we don't trust that you're able to do it again, which is offensive to sort of say to the people who have now proven they can do it. They can do uh, a a super successful Spider-Man storyline. You know, common sense would tell you these are the people to trust to be able to do it again and not to drag it out till everyone's dead. Yeah. Yep. I mean, because quite frankly, you know, I mean, it's funny, Terry, and we, (laughs) Terry and I have spoken about this quite a bit. I, A, (coughs) I don't think I fully embraced how offensive that was to us. And also, it, it, it bothers me that the editors at the time, and I don't know who was in charge exactly at that, that point, didn't say, well, no, we'll come up with another idea, mm-hmm. which would have been the logical way. And it could have been something as simplistic as, you know, something that Terry would have had a problem with, of having Peter and Mary Jane come back after a breather. Yeah, there was there was a lot of story potential there without layering. It wasn't as Terry said; it wasn't ex, an expansion. It got buried under just crap. At that point, we just kept there. The one of the issues that I really hated was where I wrote an issue that featured a virtual reality Spider-Man, because you know, as clones were big prior to, you know, Dolly the sheep was big. When we coming VR up, VR was also big at the time. Yeah. VR was very big, and the, <laughs> the editor at the time decided that we should do something with virtual reality. And the cover is literally uh, Spider-Man. I think it's Scarlet Spider swinging towards the the or jumping towards the the readers, and he's got two Uzis in his hand. Now, all of this took place in a a virtual reality setting, but I don't know how much further away from Spider-Man you could get yeah, than yeah. to put guns in his hand. The, so. tipping, the tipping point issue for me was send in the clones. Yeah. Uh, 500 clones pouring towards us on the cover. And me just thinking this... I remember that one. <laughs> this dilutes the entire concept of you have this unique clone and then you have his sort of twisted brother earlier version, the the Cain or, you know, Cain of Cain and Abel version of this. But now there's a thousand other clones. And so what's unique about Ben Riley or Peter Parker at this point? It, it was that they had been given personalities and developed and you send in these other clones and you've just diluted that. Complete now, clones are easy, they can all have personalities too, and there's nothing interesting about telling the story about these two people and which one is a clone and which not, considering there's hundreds of other clones. Yep, to me, that was the tipping point. Uh, this story just got ruined. I really thought it got ruined. So, look, like looking back now, you sound really jazzed on it. How have you, how has it been hearing from, from people like, like me who read it and didn't really have anything negative to say about it. It was like that, that's, that was their Spider-Man growing up. So the, the fan press hated it, vilified us. I was particularly vilified. My, I think my Wikipedia page said, you know, responsible for the, mess that's the clone saga or something so that's like the fan press and the all the professionals completely hated it and the fans seemed to really like it which is why it was selling well 
And and Howard has had more experience at conventions since then, but he gets a lot of accolades for it. And most of them are from people, I, I assume, Casey, your age and younger. And, you know, that was our audience. The, the ones that hated it, like that were were, um, you know, working in the fan press, they, you know, and had, were, were our age or older at the time, and, you know, oh, well, this isn't my Spider-Man. Well, guess what? It's not supposed to be. It, right. Exactly. That's one thing. You know, that... it's not supposed to be. <laughs> so what I get now is, you know, people who were, were kids were 8 to 12 or, or 15 years old at the time, and they come up with stuff and I always, I always say, you know, similar thing to what Terry led off uh, this uh, interview with, which is, well, did you like it or did you hate it? And they was, oh no, Ben Riley was my my Spider Man, and that's who we were doing it for. Yep. You know, we we weren't, you know, we weren't doing it for marketing until they took over. We weren't doing it for the <coughs> the older fans, not not only our age at the time. We were. We were still, I mean, Terry, I, I was 12 when I started writing comics. How old were you? I was nine. Yeah, yeah. Really? That makes sense. And no. we, we were, were not writing it for people in their 30s or 40s, okay? We were writing it to try to grasp that same, sen- or, or not grasp that sensibility, but to give the experience that we had or that Terry had when he read that first clone saga, yeah. clone story, I'm sorry, the Jerry Conway <laughs> story, or, you know, that, you know, that, you know, I read in the, the death of Gwen Stacy, or, you know, we were just trying to create stuff for a younger audience that was, was being abandoned, quite frankly, at that time. Yeah, they were. Yeah. So I, I was always very conscious from the minute I started working in comics that there was a, a sort of sacred trust to it. And, and I was so excited. And to this day, I'm very excited that I got, if I brought a, a modicum of the amount of joy that was brought to me by comic books when I was younger, if I brought that to some kids, then how lucky was I uh, to have had a job doing what I liked and being able to, to bring that kind of experience to people. And when we hear Ben Riley was our Spider-Man. Well, that means we created a character that was identifiable for the audience we were writing to. And that means we did our job well. Yep. That's awesome. I mean, as far as Bonafides go, I mean, not only did you do what what became the Clone Saga, but you, you also were one of the guys in charge of Maximum Carnage, which blew my mind when I was a kid. <laughs> So, and uh, you were talking about fandom earlier. One of the negative things about fandom for me, just in, in particular, is people who get to be like I am, who are, you know, ostensibly in, you know, almost 40 and fail to, to realize that, you know, the stuff that made them happy when they were kids were made for kids. And so as an adult, you know, what you, you can't, you can't expect the writers to keep writing for you. Your time, <laughs> you can you can appreciate it for what it is, but you, you're you're not a kid anymore. Like you get your happiness from booze now. Yep. <laughs> exactly. Yep. So 
Yeah, no, I, I mean, I was very aware when I was editing comics, I was taught that our tar- target audience, and you know, when this is not currently politically correct, but our target audience, our market, were 11 to 15 year old boys. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's who we were writing for. And so I, I, as best as I could, had to put myself in that mindset. And I, I was very aware of it. I mean, even more so on Ghost Rider than I was on Spider-Man. It was, uh, I, or when I was editing comics, I, w- I would have writers, and I'm, I'm sure you had this experience, Tara, as well, where a writer would turn in a, a script and there would be language in it that was not acceptable, not only for the comics code, but for Marvel's personal standards. Mm-hmm. You know, it would be something simple like saying damn or ass or, or some, something like that in, in the comic. And I would call the, the writer up and I'd say, you know, we're going to have to change this. And he said, oh, oh, no, no. And I, I remember having this conversation at least once. No, no, no. It's got to be this because that's exactly what somebody would say in that situation. And I'd say, well, okay, that, that's good, but two things. One, that's why it's called creative writing. So, you, and number two, it's not going to, to be printed that way. So I'm giving you the opportunity to change it, <laughs> yeah. or I will. <laughs> yeah. Your call. It can be all your words or almost all your words. <laughs> From from personal experience, Grandma would have put that one back on the on the rack if she would have seen that. <laughs> yeah, and it was. I mean, we, we that was really drilled into us, and it had little to do with the comics code, quite frankly. I mean, it was it was a it was Marvel standards at that time. We just didn't do it. Yep. Since you both had experience as as editors, how much did that experience influence the work that you put out as writers? You first, Howard. Oh, well, I, I mean, I, I, had, I had started writing while I was still an editor. I, I think I explained I was, you know, much like, I mean, t- uh, quite frankly, it was fun, Terry, listening to your, your path story, because in very many ways, we, we, it, it, it mirrors mine. I mean, you know, Higgins brought you into Marvel. Carlin. I grew up with Carlin. He brought me in. You know, Higgins, Higgins gave you, you know, your your first job that nobody else wanted. Mark forced me to write my first issue <laughs> of, of, of comics. And then suddenly when people realize you can write, you start getting more offers. But I... I, I, I think it, it definitely, I mean, I, I personally think one of the reasons I had such longevity was that I had experience on the other side of the desk. I personally think if I went back to being an editor, you know, two years after I, I had gone f- freelance, I would have been a better editor having experienced things on the other side of the desk because I would have known what a, a freelancer was like. But <coughs> I because I was very, you know, I was aware of, you know, house styles, house rules. Also, I was very aware of schedules as well, where, I mean, even up until a few years ago, where I was working for DC, I remember at one point having to call my editor and say, you do know that this book is getting, I mean, I was telling him about the schedule that, you know, we really needed to to get moving on certain things. 
And so I, I think as a result, editors liked working with me because, you know, I, I knew it. I knew the shorthand. I knew what was expected. And then I did it. So in that way, it, it definitely, it, it helped me and it certainly influenced how, how I wrote. Yeah, I, I, I agree with everything Howard just said. It, for me, it was also, I came to understand how the combination of writer-artist could affect something. And so I started writing when I was still in editorial as well. But I, it really mattered. What I wrote mattered. <laughs> Who the artist was going to be mattered to what I wrote. And it would inform what I wrote often. If I knew this person does really great underwater stories, I would write to that in a way that I'm not sure I would have thought to do if I hadn't been an editor and seen how the combining different people made for different stories from them. I was the editor of Marvel Comics Presents for five years. So that came out not just once a month, but twice a month with four eight-page stories, 32 pages of material. I used to love those. And I loved it too. And I got to work with every Marvel character and I got to work with every freelancer. And I would figure out ways of taking like a new penciler and putting him with an experienced thinker. I didn't invent any of this, but that also impacted how I combined the, the writer and sometimes even the letter, how I would use them. So I think I took that with me into writing. Also, the scheduling aspect, I was very aware that if I'm behind, then the next person in line, then, you know, the letter is going to be behind and he's going to have to make up the time that I cost him. And I would be, I like to think I was more sensitive about that. Yeah. And the one other thing I would say is it affected my issue to issue pacing of stories, not my internal pacing of an issue but my issue to issue because I was constantly terrified that they were going to introduce an infinity war crossover issue. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> and I knew that from how difficult it was as an editor I'd say, Oh my God, we're right in the middle of this character is drowning under the water, but now I have to have them in space for an issue, you know, and then get them back to drowning under the, so anyway, I, yeah. I, it affected that for me as well. Yeah, I, I was talking to Mark Wade the other day, and he seemed to have miraculously just kind of dodged so many big event bullets. And I do not blame him at all because it's just so, it seems like you guys have a fairly solid idea of where you want to go with the story. And then having to, ha- having to change all that and drop everything to uh, deal with some, you know, weird cross title event that sounds like a pain in the ass oh it was but you knew you had to do it i'm curious did mark consciously and proactively avoid those did he leave titles when they were about to do some crossover event because if so more power to him how wise i didn't get into that too much with him however I, i do know that he left captain america when liefeld took over the title and he, he offered to keep him writing. And then I, maybe he saw the big titty cat pick and was like, Nope. <laughs> so at least in my head canon, that's what I want to have happened. It's just like, nah, man. That infamous cover. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so co- coming out of, of writing this 
massive what 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 it what turned into a massive you know several volume now like in in the prints several volume book what do you guys think you learned and and took away from it (laughs) (laughs) should i be scared of what the answer is going to be I'm scared. What is it, Howard? I don't know. I, I mean, I, 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 I think what, one of the things I, I learned was never listen to marketing. Uh, and I, yeah, I'm not sure I learned a, a, a lot. He needs to learn that right now, I think. Oh my gosh. But, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, and it's worse now than it was then, quite frankly, because I don't think the, 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 on the corporate level, <laughs> comic books for a long time were, were left alone because we were just a cash cow. And, you know, and basically, oh, you'd pay them some money, give them some royalties, and they're going to generate some some books for us. Some IP, really. Some intellectual property is really... Yeah, important. yep. And, you know, now everything, you know, quite frankly, and for, for a number of years now at Marvel and more so at DC, everything is editorially directed. Unless... And, you know, I have to say there, there are a few creators that maybe have a little bit more elbow room than others, but you would not get the opportunity. Like Terry and I would not have had the opportunity to pitch the Clone Saga idea. It would have been something that editors sat in a room, and still, they sit in a room, they come up with something, and they then approach the creators and say this is what we need you to do and i i think that's a real failing on their part and it's easy for me to say this right now because yeah i'm not working for them but you're you're leaving a lot of ideas out there that could potentially be the next you know quite frankly clone saga or age of apocalypse or you know dark knight or or you know Daredevil Reborn or, you know, any, any of those big ideas don't have, there's no place for them to grow anymore in, in modern comics. Now, now I say there are a handful of, of creators who could possibly get some of that stuff done, but a lot of those guys are taking the bigger ideas and doing their own stuff now because, you know, they, they, why would they share the, the 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 money when when they can you know you know pub, publish through image or or any of the other creator imprints or self publish at this point and and own it all and it isn't even just a matter of it being a better financial deal for them there's less interference for yeah. the story yeah. they want to tell and i mean you would ask what coming out the other side of the clone saga what what do we take from that? What do we learn? I would say what I learned is that everybody involved in the project has to be on the same page. That doesn't mean everybody agrees every detail because they're going to have their own little parts of the project to do and how they do, but they have to be on the same page with the same intent. And that includes, if you're writing something for Marvel Comics, that includes the assistant editor, the editor, the intern, the marketing department, you know, the licensing department, there are a lot of other, to, to, to imagine that all of those departments and people are going to end up being on the same page is really unrealistic. 
So the more you can limit that, there's an advantage to Marvel having a licensing department and a marketing department. It's just, you, you just have to, that's what I took from the clone. You have to know that everybody involved in that project is on the same page. Otherwise you can't do anything about it when it goes astray. Yeah. And we, you know, to, to Terry's point, I mean, we, we, we have over the years read articles about the clone saga, some of them interviews that don't include Terry or I in the discussion and will include others who were, were either there or had spoken to somebody who was there and who ultimately have very different memories about how it all came about than, than Terry and I, who, and I, I would say, and that, you know, I normally tr- try to throw Terry under the bus and just say it was all him. I was just an innocent bystander. But I would say that, you know, if I were going to rank us in order of the original clone story, you would definitely be in the lead, Tara. I think I would be directly behind you. And then the other writers, maybe, you know, DeMattison and DeFalco would have come after us. But yeah, I would honestly say distantly after us for the concept Yes. Oh, the concept. I mean, they all told their own stories and stole and told them well. Right. Yes. Yes. And, and I, I would totally agree, agree with that. But so when I, I do, and, and some of them are people that I, I, I like, but I'm always surprised when I, I see some of their words being used as fact about things that they, they really were not involved in. And, you know, but that, you know, look, I mean, it, that, it's the nature of the business. It's the nature of, of history, quite frankly. You know, stories get exactly by the interns. Yeah. Yeah. But so, you know, it, 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 it's fine. And I, I think there was one, one thing that came out years and years ago, and I'm not going to go into details, but I remember I read it and I, I remember contacting Terry and said, it was something online. I said, did you read this? And, and he, he read it and neither, both of us had very different memories of some of the stuff that was being cited as fact. And so I contacted the, the, the guy that wrote the piece and he sat down with you and I at the New York Comic Con. Oh yeah. Okay. Uh, to, to interview us. And it's not, it's not like I'm trying to say the, these people, these other people are lying. I'm just saying that, as one of the two creators, I often read some of these things and say, I, I just say bullshit. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's just not the way it happened. <laughs> so I've, I've literally read from someone who I believe was in the room that the intent all along was that the story would end and Peter Parker would stay as Peter Parker. And that is just categorically untrue. That was not the intent when that writer's conference ended. It was going to be a permanent change, and we had to do that very carefully. We knew that. So the, the minute I read that sentence that from somebody saying the intent was that it was not going to stick, I know, well, I, there's no sense reading this, this piece at all. Because- <laughs> well, well, the one that always gets me is, well, I wasn't there, but I spoke yeah. to yeah. uh, the, this assistant editor who was there, and they said, okay, now we're getting into... A uh, game of what is it, telephone or telegraph or whatever? Yeah, telephone. You know, yeah, uh, uh, you know, and it's just 
it's not true. <laughs> you know, just not true. So yeah. anyway, but that's, like I said, that's not to cast aspersions on, on any of these people. It's just that, you know, quite frankly, you know, you should always speak to the source if you want information as you are doing now, Casey. Awesome. And, and, and I've, I'm so happy that I've gotten to have this discussion with you guys. I've, I've enjoyed it so much. Is there anything that y'all want to talk about before, before, we, before we take it down? Well, Howard and I are working on a new project, a new company called Inksmith, I-N-K-S-M-Y-T-H, as in myth at the end. And we do custom comics for people. Howard and I have access to pretty much everyone who's worked in the comic book industry. And so we can customize the talent and the story around individual people and their personal strengths and foibles. We, we even we even have access to the dead people. Well, you do. <laughs> so, how long does it take to write a book via Ouija? <laughs> you know, it's just like, just like everything else. It's one letter at a time. <laughs> That's probably the best answer I could have gotten from that stupid question. <laughs> We, but no, I mean, you know, we're we're having fun. We've done a number of these custom comics. It is it, they, it is a, a boutique pro- project where we really try to personalize the comics, create, put people. They're usually purchased as gifts for other people, and we we turn the subject into their own superhero in the comics, and it's it's done in a regular comic book format. And thus far, we've had really good response. And there, there is a website, inksmith.com, and you can, can reach out and somebody will come back to you. And yeah, we'll, we'll put that in the show notes. Thank you. It's a way to, this custom comic is a way to celebrate people in a unique, creative way that really hadn't been done previously. Uh, superheroes are more and more a part of the, the mass consciousness so people of any age can enjoy being heroized this way and we really found that during covid in fact when people couldn't celebrate other people in the traditional way throw a you know 20th anniversary party for them etc this was a way to do it for people and in a way that they'd have in their hands and would have some heft and they'd hold it forever and could look at it when they wanted whereas a party would have been transitory and fleeting that that would make an amazing gift for sure. That that's so cool that you guys are are still working together. Good God, your your friendship has to be over thirty years by now. Well, but wait, if Terry was nine, <laughs> I was probably that's right. I'm yeah, I'm I'm, I'm forty two. So yeah, thirty years. That sounds good. Do we really have to put a number to it. We don't have to put it in, and I can edit that out if you want. No, we, we have been friends for 36 years. Oh, God. Yes. <laughs> I didn't even get anything. Terry's no. like, oh, gosh, I yeah. I've known this joker for 30 years. Well, actually, my first thought was, oh, God, 36 years, Howard's old. <laughs> that was my first thought. <laughs> yep. Yeah, look in the mirror, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> well, While we were talking, I just, I happened to just found a photo of Terry from about that time that I, I actually was, it was 30, I think 32, 31 years ago, or 30, 33 years ago. I just, I, and I just uh, texted it to him. Yes, and I made the mistake of looking at it. Hey, man, it, 
aging happens, you know, you just gotta, if uh, you're lucky. Exactly. Exactly. So, and I'm glad you guys are, are doing well and healthy and because it's scary right now. Oh my gosh. So thank y'all so much for coming on the show. And anytime y'all want to talk about anything, give me a heads up because I really enjoy talking. Sure. Sounds good. Started late. Howard, Terry, thank you again. Thank you. Thank you, Casey. Take care. Y'all have a good weekend. You too. And we're back. That's right. We are back. Back in the saddle again. Well, (laughs) I hope you guys really, really enjoyed that as much as we did making it for you. And if you like what you heard and you want to hear more, you got to go check out SpoilerVerse.com because at SpoilerVerse.com, we have a plethora. Plethora is such a, it's such a snobbish word. (laughs) I like it though. (laughs) It's a good word. (laughs) We have an obscene amount of interviews with amazing directors and artists of all walks of life and editors and writers and oh my god are you a lover of comic books like we are and then there's so many so many amazing people from the comic book world over at spoilerverse.com and i highly implore you to go there and check it out yeah and while you're there you can check out all the other podcasts on our network like bridges and geekdoms and funny book forensics and haphazard adventures and nerds from the crypt and so many more misery point radio episodes all the time misery point radio has got a ton of great stuff out there go check all of them out and Check out all of the reviews and previews and articles we have going up every single day for you. Every day on Swillivers.com for you to check out, to read, and to love, and to like, and to comment. We have a store link. You want to help support the site? You can do it two ways. One, go to our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash country, or go to our store link in the middle of the site there and get a t-shirt, a face mask, a hoodie, something. Look fly as hell and help support the site when you do that because we get a dollar or two. And, you know, maybe you want to talk to us. If you do, you can do it, you know, obviously, on all the socials. But if you go to scpod.us slash discord, you can join our public discord server and come chat with us all day long. I couldn't say it better myself, dude. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You just mouthed out a ton of information at once. And really, <laughs> I hope you guys enjoy what you're hearing because we're, we're working our butts off to bring it to you. We are. We are. I guess there's only one left thing. One left thing? Yeah. I'm going to go with it. There's only one left thing left to do. What's that? In an oceans of podcasts, we are Cthulhu. As Cthulhu compels you to do, open the mind. And read more.